All right, so tonight I have uh, as a guest here, Starkman, who's um, uh, really caught my attention as one of our young uh, rising stars in the academy and in facial plastic surgery, and I uh, wanted to shout out to him. I, I love these podcasts because, first of all, people really appreciate them a lot. They really appreciate the knowledge you're getting from them. I run into younger people. I, I had a little bit of a hiatus uh, for a few months, but then every time I run to people to meeting, they thank me and especially the younger people or say, keep going. You know, I, I learned so much, but do you remember the first time we met Sid? Absolutely. I do. It was over at the meeting in Beaver Creek, Colorado, the meeting that you put on for a few years, one of my favorites. Yeah. And now what, how long ago was that about? Oh boy. Uh, it was probably about six or seven years ago. Yeah, so you were you were staying at the vendor's house, I believe, right? I was in town. That was actually right before. I think my first time when I went to that meeting was as an ENT resident. So was I was staying really? over there at the hotel. That was a year or two before I did Devinder Mangit's excellent fellowship. Yeah. yeah. So I, you know, I, um, you know, Vinder's a good buddy of mine, and um, you know, he would he invite he would invite me to stay at his house and. Uh, he was such a great host. He always had a party there at the house. Um, did you get now? Did, were you there during the BB Creek meeting when uh, when you were a fellow? I was. So I was there during my fellowship year. So I was there for one of his meeting parties that year, which was great. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was it was always a terrific meeting. One of my favorites. I think I, I I've only missed one or two since the mid 90s. But uh Anyway, I, I wanted to kind of get to your your story. Now, how long, how many years have you been out? I mean, you've, you've done incredibly well in the short period of time you've been out. I've been out of fellowship for coming up on about three and a half years now. Yeah, which is really incredible success because, uh, you know, I have <laughs> now, now and then I have former fellows who say to me, hey, you know, Dr. Williams, you, you know, I'm 10 years in practice. I'm finally just not starting not to worry. You know, you never told us that. And I always say, no, I've told you, you just weren't listening because, <laughs> uh, you know, in the beginning, it's it's rough. So, you know, um, before we get into this, tell me about your family. Um, you know, family is kind of what brought us back here to Scottsdale, Arizona when we came back. So married to my wife, Allie, uh, met her way back when I was in going through medical school and residency, registered nurse and First key part that she really helped with starting my private practice while we were going through residency and fellowship and setting all that up. And with Allie, we've got three young kids. So we've got a four-year-old going on five-year-old daughter and then also a three-year-old and a one-year-old. So oh, wow. family so of five a, of us at home. Oh, yeah, full house. Very busy house. I remember those days. My, my wife and I were for the first time empty nesters. And it's just it's very, very different because you go through that phase. It's crazy, right? Oh, it's crazy. I tell people at work, people <laughs> talk about how, you know, I'm, I'm busy in the operating room and I tell them that's nothing compared to what my wife's doing, chasing around yeah. three toddlers at home. Yeah, I hear you. So you, you, you decided to, you know, you decided to go to Scottsdale and that was a, was that a tough decision? Was that an easy decision? I mean, and how did you pick Scottsdale, Arizona? So, you know, part of it is, I was in Scottsdale for high school. I moved there when I was 10 years old from Canada. And my wife, Allie, is originally from Arizona, so right in the Phoenix area. So when we were going through residency in upstate New York and then fellowship in Cincinnati, we were given some thought. We knew we wanted to go the, I knew I wanted to go the private practice route and try to start off the career that way. And we were looking towards going somewhere closer back to home. And so we were looking at West Coast, Arizona, California, but then once we started having our, our first and then second kiddo, I think really the the deal breaker was going back somewhere where Allie's parents were around and just having some family infrastructure because we knew that was going to help out quite a bit with work-life balance, with everything that goes into starting a practice. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I, I tell everyone, where's your, you know, where's your family? And, uh, you know, that's critical because the, the support – it's really hard to do it on your own. Um, and having family is, uh, you know, it, it, it's just so helpful. My wife and I didn't have family where we are. And it was just, it was a struggle in the early years. Uh, my, my daughter and my son-in-law were, you know, uh, she's not the just He's doing his fellowship, but they have us here and they're going to be here, but they have a ton of support. And I just, I, I see the difference, you know, having family around, especially for what you're trying to do. 
um, you know, in your career. So where did you train in upstate New York? So originally trained at Mayo in Minnesota for med school and then went to upstate New York to university at Buffalo. Uh, one of the draws was a uh, good friend of both of ours, David Sharris, is a facial oh, plastic a, surgeon a, out there, excellent rhinoplasty and facelift surgeon and reconstruction. So um, wasn't sure exactly when I started residency that I wanted to do facial plastic surgery, but big draw to go up there. So I was in Buffalo, New York. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, David is, uh, you know, he, he's, first of all, he's a good friend of mine. He's turned that program around. When I was uh, matching, Syracuse was my first choice. Buffalo was probably my, toward the bottom of the list because it was so fragmented. And it's just, mm -hmm. a, it's a good testament of leadership because Buffalo had all the ingredients, you know, Children's Hospital. Back then, I had Roswell, I had uh, Jack LaRay, and, and uh, you know, he's a head neck surgeon. And so, I mean, it just goes on and on, but, but the program was so fragmented and Dave uh, came from Mayo and uh, really has uh, done a terrific job and also been able to develop, a, which is a fascinating, a, a really nice facial plastic surgery practice within the university, which is uh, not easy to do. But, you know, as chair, I guess you have a little bit more latitude. So how did you um, so when you were planning this to go, how did you do transition I mean, you went right out into practice, right? I mean, I did that. People say it's you're nuts to do that. How did was that something you did right out of the gate from the vendors? Yeah, and people said the same thing to me. They said that I was nuts. I thought that I was a little bit nuts. It was it was scary, you know. I really didn't know how I was going to get patients and really get things going from absolutely zero, from starting things out from nothing. And the process actually, you know, started. I think we really actually started it. So I started my my private practice in Scottsdale right out of fellowship with, you know, finished fellowship July 1. And then I think we opened our doors in October, which wound up being pretty quickly. But that's because we I started it about two years earlier. Some of the legwork went into it way back when I was a chief resident and in residency and then kind of continued all the planning kind of long distance. So kind of started the legwork two years in advance, which I think was kind of part of the key to getting things going relatively quickly. So you knew that's what you wanted to do. You were going to go back. We're going to go out on your own and, and uh, just give it a go. Yep. Once I figured out that I wanted to, so I was leaning actually back and forth and during residency between facial plastics and actually laryngology. But, you know, part of because of my mentorship with David Sharis and my passion for rhinoplasty and aging face and reconstruction once I decided I want to do facial plastics and do the fellowship realized that I kind of like the idea of entrepreneurship my talk with you actually during residency kind of helped steer a little bit of that too I always liked what you were talking about and everything from the business side I like the idea of building something and the unique possibilities that we have as facial plastic surgeons so decided during residency towards the end of it that that's the path I wanted to do and Really, you know, as you know, it takes years to kind of get something going. So started it during towards the end, during my chief year of residency. Yeah. You know, I think I think uh, going down the road of doing something on your own, being an entrepreneur, it, it takes a special breed for sure. It's it's not for everybody. Um, I I was the same way I in my residency. I remember, you know, as a chief resident making phone calls and calling Albany. That's where I wanted to go just because it was closer to family. I knew there wasn't anyone really there. Um, and I, and, uh, my other fellow during my fellowship used to jokingly say that, you know, I had a, I had a phone attached to my ear all year because I was constantly on the phone trying to do things. But, but I, I think for a lot of people, it's not really that appealing. And, uh, and it, it, it comes with its, uh, lost, lost sleep, as you know, uh, making that decision. So did you go out? I mean, did you, how did you, did you rent space? I mean, so you say you started in, you know, in October, did you, uh, you know, get your feet on the ground there, run around and meet people? I mean, did you borrow money? I mean, how did you, you, you know, I'll tell you my story, but how did you, how did you, how did you get that started? It's not easy to do. Huge long process, but for me, it started off, you know, back at the beginning with just the overall plan, having an idea of what I wanted to do and what we were going to do. So started off with, Coming up with a business plan, a pro forma, really tough to have a projection in terms of for what kind of, from a business standpoint, revenue and expenses exactly. we're going to have. 
but I tried to do the best I could just by speaking to colleagues, friends, other people that were a couple of years ahead of me who started up their own practice, hung their own shingle. And, you know, most of those, you know, I'm very forward with anyone that reaches out to me and the people I reached out to beforehand were very honest and very detailed in what their revenues and expenses were in ballpark, just to give me an idea of what to expect, even though everyone's different. But had an idea with that, had a little projection, and then, of course, went out and got, spoke to a few different banks and saw if there was anyone that would give me a line of credit or any sort of funding to get the, the practice going or get the business plan going. Fortunately, you know, I found some local banks in Arizona. I think it was kind of nice to work with it for me found a regional bank in Arizona where worked out well in our situation, have some personal relationships with the bankers who I still have and were helpful with getting everything going. Then from there, you know, that's kind of really the first step just to make sure that everything was viable. And then in terms of finding a space, I just wanted to find something that would allow me to get things going. You know, I didn't want to do anything that was too large that was going to overextend myself because of the uncertainty with starting a practice and not knowing where it was going to take me from the beginning and didn't want to do anything that was going to be too tiny that I was going to outgrow in six months. So I wanted to find that nice small balance. And my first practice, first location we found was something that was about 3000 square feet, um, which, which was, is good size. Quite it's, frankly. A, it's a, it's a good size and, you know, big enough for me to actually build, you know, it's, it's a whole other, whole other talk, but, um, build out an operating room inside of it, which wound up being very beneficial in my case, but was just big enough for two exam rooms, a consult room, a lobby, and uh, an accredited surgery suite, about as efficient as we could make it with a nurse's station, sterilization rooms. And, you know, most importantly, just a nice, easy location for people to get to and good parking. So we found a, a space early on and then went into renovating it, getting it ready. And that was kind of done during my fellowship year. You know, the improvements and everything to get it ready for a, an operating room in a clinic happened over about 12 months during fellowship. And then from there, That's, just moving uh, on impressive. to all the things like staffing and all that. Mm -hmm. yeah. that was, those were the first parts. Yeah, I did something very similar. Uh, my space was about 2,600 square feet or so. Um, and I got, a, I got a hospital that would lend me the money, which I could, as long as I use their operating rooms. But you know, in my in the back of my mind, I always I knew that ultimately I wanted to have my own operating room, you know. But um, so I got a question for you. When you were doing projections, I think I know the answer. But, you, you, you know, did you factor in, you know, trying to do some reconstructive stuff? Did you make I mean, what kind of assumptions did you make? Because I, I'll bet you, correct me if I'm wrong, I'll bet you, you know, the numbers, the way you have them now are very different than the projections that you made because, it's just hard to anticipate how your practice is going to go. Oh, a hundred percent. And, you know, realistically, I, I think that banks and everyone knows that for a brand new startup business, that it's all a guess. But I think the banks just want to see that entrepreneurs have a plan. Yep. So they just want Completely. to know that we've thought things out, that we've planned for it. And they know that they don't know, we don't know, none of us know. But the way that I came up with mine was I took some of the numbers from a handful of my colleagues that gave me some rough numbers from kind of what their regular expenses are. I thought to myself, you know, if I do, I don't know how much I'm going to operate at first. If I do two surgeries, four surgeries, six surgeries a month and collect this much in the way of surgeon fees or so, this might be the revenue. And I broke down, you know, kind of projected revenue in terms of surgical revenue and then non-surgical revenue, Botox, fillers, things that you can start off with early in your career potentially for a little bit of supplemental income for non-surgical services. And then, you know, for the expenses side of things, you would separate it into our fixed and variable expenses. What are my fixed expenses that are going to be the same month to month, like rent, insurance, and then my variable expenses that go up month to month, like the cost of supplies, cost of marketing, cost of employees and staff, and really just did the best I could in terms of a little bit of projection with that and put together a 12, a 24 month projection month by month. And that was enough to show all of the potential lenders that we at least have a plan, had a plan in place. Mm -hmm. Now, did you, did you work with a consultant? Did you work with an accountant? I'll tell you how, you know, I did what I did, but I'm, I'm curious. Yes. So, you know, with me, I don't have any 
I think it's very beneficial if someone has a plastic surgeon or or physician or business owner in the family. But in my case, we I didn't have a a close relative or someone that could step in as that immediate close mentor or someone who would show me how to start everything. So I reached out to a couple consultants, plastics or medical practice consultants, and spoke to a few of them. And I found one that was local or regional, and she was very helpful in terms of just helping out with kind of that initial checklist that we want for the first year. I didn't have her do everything for me, but she was, you know, you can have a consultant that will do everything and from start to finish. And we found a nice little medium. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. uh, But I have found, you know, it's like doing a building or a project. The, you know, the fees you spend on the front end for the design or for that, they seem like a lot of money, but in reality, they're, I mean, we're going through this with the project that we're doing right now. And, you know, in the beginning, it's like, I can't believe what I'm spending on this, but the reality is it, it, it pays off. What I did was I uh, identified a hospital that really wanted me. I think that what they really, they thought, I just long enough ago that I thought, well, they're thinking, oh, that facial plastic surgery stuff sounds cute, but what we really want is a neurologist, <laughs> you know? So what they did, though, is they, they I worked with their marketing person. As long as I was going to take space in the building, and I was as long as I was going to use their operating room, they provided a marketing person and they and they, he helped me write a business plan. So I kind of I got that, you know, I don't say gratis, but it, it, and I got some marketing money from the from the hospital. So you did that. You went out, you know, you had some you know funds lined up. Um, how did you start? How did you, you know, get your first couple patients in the door? Yeah. So, you know, starting off, I really think I had. I didn't have a lot. I had maybe a couple before and after photos of maybe one facelift, maybe two rhinoplasties from my fellowship. So not a lot of examples for patients, no word of mouth. And I started off by trying to go to a few of the primary care referral bases in town locally. That really didn't work out too well for me just because nowadays. Why do you think that is? Because, you know, I I think I know why that is. I think that now there's just so many, you know, medical, you know, the medical community, there's not a lot of small or solo providers anymore. There's it's all group practices. So with the multi-specialty group practices, at least in my area, in Phoenix, there's a lot of the referral bases from within the multi-specialty groups to each other with the referral bases. So, you know, I, I hit the ground. I met a lot of the family medicine docs, the um, primary care. And it was nice to meet them, but it didn't lead to too much in the way of referrals. I did meet with some And I got to tell you, I had, this, yeah. I had the same same experience. You know, I got, I met so many in the beginning and just, I think part of it was, it's not like they didn't yeah. want to send you somebody. How, how many people right. do they really have, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah. And I think I, for me, the most uh, beneficial were, Give me 10 dermatologists and one of them will give you a shot, send you a skin cancer or something, right? But but how did, exactly. how did, it, how did it work for you? Yeah, so, you know, I did have one dermatologist where the biggest thing in terms of getting that was availability. I told her that yep. if she ever did a Mohs reconstruction, give our office a call and send them over that day and I'll get, you know, early on while we have time, mm-hmm. do a Mohs reconstruction, give us a call and we'll repair it that same day. So the availability was attractive and that was really great early on for getting some skin cancer reconstruction referrals, just because of the availability. As far as getting things started off on, you know, cosmetic rhinoplasty facelift end in the beginning, you know, the the biggest thing for me is, you know, we don't have all the, I didn't have the reviews in the beginning. I didn't have the before and after photos, but what I had and what facial plastic surgeons have are fellowship training, residency training and head and neck surgery and specialization in head and neck surgery so patient and facial plastic surgery so patients came to me early on because they were looking for someone who only did facial plastic surgery of the face and neck and nose and i could speak to them confidently about what my plan would be and really took the time and i still do to listen to them explain to them about what would go into it and try to demonstrate a little bit of the expertise that we have in rhinoplasty surgery and facelift surgery that would 
give give off the impression or the image of our place as an expert in those fields, not doing breast surgery or body surgery, but really focusing on what my niche was as a rhinoplasty and aging face specialist in terms of for cosmetic facial plastic surgery. So that was did helpful you do, at the beginning. Did you do much in the way of skin cancer at all in the beginning? I did a fair amount. Uh, basically, the skin cancer that I did in the beginning was sent over by mostly that dermatologist that I yep. spoke about a little bit earlier. Um, so there was a fair amount. I a would say bit. maybe one or two skin cancer recons a week. Okay. Do you, I mean, do you still have a relationship with her? Or do you still do any skin cancer? I don't do any skin cancer anymore. The reason, you know, mostly just because it's because, well, one of, in our practice, solo practice, we actually stopped taking insurance a couple of years ago. Yeah, which is really extraordinary for someone who's right out, about a couple of years. I mean, you know, many people, it takes them years to get to a point where they have the confidence to not take insurance at all. It was bittersweet, Ed. You know, I I, I love those patients. I, I really did. You know, I got great training in uh, reconstruction and the insurance cases. The problem was dealing with insurance companies, and it was too tough. So nowadays, I'm much happier where it's mostly cosmetic work. And if there's ever a patient that comes in that really has a medical issue that I feel that I could address maybe in a different way than other people that I could refer to, what I'll end up doing nowadays is instead of going through insurance to get a few hundred bucks, I'll just do it pro bono. And it's not a big difference in terms of that, but it's just something where it's made our whole office and my life a lot easier just mm -hmm. by, you know, in my situation, sifting yeah. to that way. I mean, was it in your mind, was it kind of scary to just stop taking insurance at all? Or was it, it was easy. You had a, you had a revenue stream to work with, so you knew you weren't missing much. You know, we were, maybe we were missing a little bit. We were still having rhinoplasty patients that were coming in and we'd see if there was anything we could do for the septoplasty. But, you know, it was getting, to be honest, it was getting a little bit complicated. So eventually, I think it was just a gradual shift to where we just stopped working with it. Um, and now we still have some patients that will collect their own records and we'll do everything we can to help them with submitting it to their insurance companies themselves. But it's, it's kind of a, a tricky situation with the insurance companies these days, sure. as you know. Yeah, sure. Oh, gosh, I could talk about this forever. But <laughs> do, do you think when you did that, do you think it hurt your rhinoplasty practice for the next 12 months? You know what? I honestly believe this. I think we stopped taking insurance a year and a half or two years ago, relatively early on. I don't have any numbers to back this up. Yeah. I believe it actually helped the practice by stopping to take insurance because I think it also helped brand distinguish us as really more of what we do, which is a facelift and rhinoplasty practice. Yep. Yep. So, and I get that. I get that. The, 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 usually the earlier, the earlier on you can make that commitment. It is not easy to do though. It's not no. easy when, you know, when I've been through, you know, cause I talk to a lot of young folks too. I've been through recessions and uh, I'm at a point in my life, it doesn't matter. But early on, if someone hits a, you, know, you hit a recession and all of a sudden you know, your numbers drop a third or two thirds, half, it's scary. So you always mm -hmm. like to have something to keep the lights on. So I always tell people to, you know, think long and hard before you do it. But there's no question that the, the earlier you commit to things, you know, the better. Um, I mean, I think you would agree to that. For sure. You were, uh, you yeah. were talking with, you know, one of our friends, Ziad Katrib on one of your earlier podcasts where I think you and him were chatting about the same thing, just early commitment into, you know, identification of what we're going to do and, what direction our practices are going to go does, you know, it's, that's been one of the things with us. So yeah, dropping insurance was not an easy part um, of our decision-making, but it was something that kind of just happened a little bit gradually. It wasn't an overnight thing. Yeah. So it's interesting, all the work you put into meeting dermatologists and all that other stuff. And, you know, you end up three and a half, four years later with a, you know, easy face and rhinoplasty practice. How did you get, <coughs> excuse me, how did you get the first, you know, few patients in the door, you, you know, you got no, you've got no reviews out there. Um, did you go give, you know, uh, seminars, uh, you know, do webinars? How did you, you know, just get people to start sending you some people or, or get your name out there? 
What did, you know, our, my first facelift patient that I ever did in Scottsdale, I think was a, a friend of one of our family members. So a little bit of, so word of mouth that way. And in terms of for, you know, rhinoplasty, so they're, you know, not too much, like you said, in terms of word of mouth, but, you know, something early on um, that helped was marketing. You know, there's no, there was, there's no walk by walk-ins or anything. People come and they find us online. So I really do think that social media, um, where people spend their time and then also, um, starting off with a relatively small or at least a planned marketing budget is a good way to have things out there in terms of having people actually find out that you exist, find out about you and blog posts, like you said, webinars, meetings. I think there were a few times where I'd go out and give some talks. And, you know, something early on that did help us, I don't do too much of it anymore, but looked into a little bit of um, radio frequency microneedling or non-surgical treatments to look into what could I do that's different than some other people. So found kind of that in-between. So I wasn't a facelift specialist. Um, I wasn't, I could do a little bit more than the the injector or the local esthetician. So I found something that was in between as kind of a non-surgical energy, radiofrequency, microneedling type treatments. And that was something that helped early on in terms of just a little bit of business coming in and got a few reviews and at least a little bit of word of mouth. Now, when you had, so, you know, you got this, you got a marketing budget. Any advice? Well, I got a couple of questions. I'm going to throw them all at you. So for someone coming out, you got a marketing budget. How did you come up with your budget per se? And then did you, you know, did you try to allocate some toward non-surgical? Did you try to, uh, you know, uh, break it up between, you know, aging face and rhinoplasty? Because each time you do these things, you're, you're, you know, you're diluting your, your message. And then how did you, uh, you know, kind of all these things. And then how did you approach, uh, I mean, social media has changed the landscape in ways we never predicted could have ever even seen. How did you approach your social media? Yeah, so for for marketing budgets, you know, what I've seen in a few different places and some places will recommend doing somewhere between six to 12% of your revenue is a good ballpark to kind of start yep. for, for marketing. So we usually do ours somewhere around there, somewhere around 10 to 12% of our revenue goes towards marketing. And I, it's for me, I just, Whenever I talk to any other surgeons or people who are starting out, I tell them it's a necessity. You have to get your name out there. There's no word of mouth yet. It's going to, as long as you do it intelligently and contract the return on investment from marketing, it's going to pay almost immediate dividends. And there's diff there's a whole bunch of different things that go into marketing from lead generation to brand recognition or brand awareness. But, you know, we started off with somewhere around a 10% marketing budget to what our revenue was. I think we probably started with something around $2,500 to $5,000 a month was what we probably started off in the beginning. Yep. And then it's continued to grow much larger than that over the years as our revenue went up. And then that was really mostly, most of it was Google ads. I That's where most of the marketing went, just what people would search for it. And what we marketed, like you mentioned, I've never, ever, I've never put a penny into marketing non-surgical. Uh, the only thing that we would ever market would be facelift and rhinoplasty. And really, for me, the biggest reason is because there's not a, you know, regardless of almost any city aside from maybe L.A. and Manhattan, there's not a ton of rhinoplasty or facelift specialists in most cities. But if you look around, you know, here in Scottsdale, I could we've got four med spas in our office park and I could go outside and throw a baseball and I'd probably hit a med spa. There's a thousand aspiring injectors and it's just a crowded landscape for injectors mm -hmm. and i don't think i'm going to bring in any new botox patients because all the med spas are going to be lower than my prices anyways so right we started off with and we still continue the only things that we would market would be or put marketing dollars towards budgeting would be rhinoplasty and facelift because of the lack of the lesser competition in those areas mm -hmm. and um, like you mentioned, just trying to position ourselves, myself and our practice, even early on is the destination for that. Mm -hmm. And social media, you know, that's really something where it's a great way to not, you know, the best social media doesn't just introduce us to 
you know, potential patients. But, you know, it's a great way to also network with local doctors, injectors, hairstylists, people that are also in the aesthetic industry. And so, you know, social media has been huge in terms of growing our practices reputation all over the place. So that's something that we've been focusing on even more so over the last six months. Yeah. So how do you, you know, how do you leverage your relationship with, you know, like like I said, other people in the aesthetic space or whether it's, you know, non-surgical, you know, with social media. And I think we've talked, I've talked about this before on the podcast. I mean, there's a lot of us, including me. I, I hate it. You know, I, I like it, but I hate it, you know, because it's just, I'm not the kind of person to look at me, how wonderful my life is. But the reality is people want to get to know Dr. Starkman. They want to know his family. They want to know he's a human being and he's got a sense of humor. And so if you can inject all of that into your social media, but for, you know, for someone who has a, a, a very busy practice, it's like a thorn in your side all the time because you feel like you have to do it. Um, so, you know, what is, you know, what's your approach and how much time do you spend on it and that, and that sort of thing? Because it's, it's, you can't not do it. I, I'm, I'm no. absolutely convinced you cannot not do it, right? If you want to, if someone has a practice and if someone wants to grow beyond, uh, you know, a local audience to regional or national or just get a, a larger patient following, I think it's a hundred percent necessary. It's the way to get your, your practice's name out there and have people actually learn and see what you do and follow you. So, you know, I started off, I've, I've always run my own social media. It's never extremely extensive, mostly before and after photos, a little bit of information. I'll do a few ask me anything's on the weekend, which are actually kind of fun. They're um, fun. So, you know, we're, we yeah. like to teach, right? So they're kind of fun. Yeah. I don't mind that. I just, I hate to be like, look at me, how great I am. You know, that's, Right. Yeah. No, I don't really. Yeah, I don't I don't enjoy any of that. But I do. Um, we do a little bit of it where, you know, I do want it to come across as where it comes from myself. The posts and everything are written and posted by myself. We tried actually having we have a, a great online marketing company and we actually tried to have them take over a little bit just to free up some of my time. And it lasted for less than two weeks just because I felt that the the voice and the message across just came across as too non-genuine and it didn't reflect our practice and our vision as well anymore i do have some people and that's, that by the way that's pretty messages. that's pretty con mm -hmm. that's pretty consistent i mean anyone yeah. i know who's tried to outsource their social media is just trying to abdicate the responsibility and it just doesn't work because it doesn't come across as you and we did it a few years ago and i remember one of my daughters calling me up and saying, Dad, you know, you, that's not you. I, I, it doesn't even seem like you. It doesn't sound like you. So, and I've heard that over and over again. So if, you, if you're going to do social media, you have to get involved, right? Yeah, there's no way around it. It's going to take a little bit of time. It has to have some of your own, um, your own voice and your own personality in it, like you said. And it takes, you know, I don't spend a ton of time on it, but it still can take a, take plenty of time. Yeah, I talked to <clears throat> talked to Mike Nyack on a podcast, and he said he spends two hours a day on it. And I, and I, I believe that you that's, know it's a, that's that's you know you have a young family, and um, you know, and I, I don't have a young family, but I, yeah, I mean that two hours a day is like that would be like torture, but um, you know it's obviously paid off off for you know paid off for Mike. So um, you know, obviously, but any other you know things that have been very effective for you early on or, you know, advice you could give to someone trying to start a practice? You know, I, I really think, you know, the, I think the two main things that have helped us early on. So, I mean, things changed over time, obviously the, the surgeries that I was doing, how I did them, the, the, the nature of the practice, you know, everything continues to evolve and we all find different niches, but I think something that's been critical to my practice and most people's businesses of any type is just having an identity and a vision from the beginning of what we're going to be. That's not going to change over time or a vision statement and a mission statement. Mm -hmm. So what I, what I think is, a, I think a lot of 
businesses fail because they're just trying to be successful, but they don't know exactly what they're doing or what it is that they do. So, you know, if we take a look at car companies, you know, Toyota, we can, very successful company, Porsche, Mercedes, they all have their own identities, how they do things, who they market to, visions and missions of how they do it. So from day one, something that we did ever since before we opened our door, we have our employee handbook, our information, but we created a, we have our vision statement, our vision of what we're going to be, just a, a prominent destination for facial plastic surgery of the highest caliber. And then the mission statement of how we're going to get there. And that's just from individualized patient-centered care with no compromise for details and making the patients feel like they're patient first. So every, you know, over time, surgeries change, scope changes, all that, but who we are and what we do doesn't. And every employee that comes in, every staff member as we grow knows what we do. You know, we're not pushing or selling rhino nose jobs and facelifts. We're offering options for people who are looking for self-image and having a having that brand identity has been huge for us just so that all of our staff all of our patients know who we are and what we do and then staffing has been huge you know as everything yeah. gets bigger you know patients tell me all the time or patients talk to me about how they want to make sure i'm not overworked or that i'm or that i take some time off but i tell them you know we've got all these 15 employees that are working 15 team members in our practice they're doing most of the work. They make they make my life easy. So surrounding your, ourselves with great teams and a great workplace culture, it takes daily effort, but it pays off. Yeah. So a couple, you know, a couple lessons there. I think uh, you know, focus from the beginning, as you as you mentioned, um, and you know, being very consistent with your message and your vision, and and we do this every meeting. I start with what, you know, who are we, what's our mission, you know, and, and clearly you put a lot of, put a lot of time and thought into this and a lot of people aren't willing to do it. And that's why you've been successful. Same thing with running a business. I mean, so often I think our younger, not even younger, but many of my colleagues, our colleagues, um, you know, think that the, the, the secret is great marketing and in reality it's, it's, really running a good business, building a team, building a culture, because you're absolutely right. I mean, there's only so much of you. And uh, it does take deliberate effort. I'm involved in a business development group, and every one of us has a very successful but different business. Hmm. And all of the conversations and challenges, and we're trying to solve problems, almost all of them center around the people problems, the people challenges. And so um you know but but clearly you're doing a good job you know with that what was the biggest one of the biggest lessons that you learned um you know early on biggest challenges you had you know from the i think uh one of some of the early challenges early on and a good thing that you know we all we all can think about this i think from early in our career i know i can is you know, starting off, not doing a lot of surgery, not very busy, trying to build a practice, build a surgical practice. And in facial plastic surgery, we have people that are coming in, obviously looking for cosmetic facial plastic surgery procedures. And, you know, we're trying to fill up our surgery schedule and get busier. But sometimes there are patients that come in and you kind of have a little, I have a, you have a little voice on your shoulder or something that's just giving you some concerns about for one reason or another, whether or not they're a good candidate for a cosmetic procedure, if they have the emotional maturity or if they have, or if they have expectations that I can meet. And whether it's because of knowing our own surgical limitations, knowing patient expectations, um, earlier in my career, maybe didn't have the experience to be able to tell patients often enough, I don't think that you'll be happy with the results of this procedure. And 
recommend either another another option or another surgeon. Okay. So no, it's hard to do. Earlier on, there were you know there's a couple patients where maybe would operate on them. I'd bring them in for second consults, go over expectations with them, and try to convince them and myself about whether or not it would be a good option for them, and they would convince me, and then would you know it wouldn't be any good for anyone afterwards. So now I think that something that I tell people is that if we ever feel if for any reason, if there's a concern or a doubt about whether or not there's a good match between surgeon and patient, it doesn't, it's our responsibility and it's in the best interest for everyone to just tell them, I don't think that surgery is a great option for you. So that was yeah. a, something that I think was a big change where my patients are happy or I'm happier, where we're just more selective in really what's the best fit for, between our practice and patients too. Yeah, I can't agree with you more. You know, my fellows always tell me the biggest thing they learn, you know, during the fellowship is how to manage expectations and how to say no. Because I've got enough gray hair. I do not want a headache. I don't need it. <laughs> I don't want it. Um, and, uh, you know, really good advice. Now, you gave a great talk on, on lip lift. So obviously that's been a niche that you've kind of carved out for yourself. Um, how did you go about doing that and any lessons you learned there and advice you could give for someone young? Because I have, I have my thoughts, but I want to hear what you have to say about that and how you, how you got that going. Oh, sure. You know, lip lift, a little bit of a, it's a great procedure for the right awesome patients. Procedure. Um, <laughs> awesome. It's uh, it got more popular. It's been around for many decades. Oh, uh, it was, I think it was what, around when I was, you know, yeah. years ago. And then, then fillers yeah. came out and people stopped doing them. Exactly. So I think what happened is that fillers got so popular 15 years ago, but then what happened is a lot of people with thin lips would get lip filler um, 15 years ago, and they would think, oh, I hate it. It gave me the duck lips because it would make their their vermilion and their cutaneous lip, both of them would be filled because they didn't have the real estate in the lip for the filler to sit in, and they wouldn't like it. And then all of a sudden, 10 years ago, I think 10 to 15 years ago, um, lip lift surgery became popularized again. And as people had, as the vault, as there were large numbers of dissatisfied, I mean, lip filler is great for what it is, but it's not great for people that really need a lip lift rather than volume. So, um, when I first started three years ago, a little bit of a niche procedure, it, when we're talking about marketing or SEO, really just naturally, I think when someone would search lip lift for whatever reason, my practice was near the was at the top of the rankings or so when they would search Google, I think just because there weren't many surgeons in my area yet that were doing lip lift surgery. So that was a little bit of a an opening for me to do quite a bit of those procedures and surgeries, the bullhorn subnasal lip lift. And the biggest thing I think really with lip lift surgery is that it's a great surgery by itself, takes anywhere around a little over 30 minutes or so done with numbing medication, uh, in my case, just local right in the anesthesia. Office. Yeah. Easily, easy. Yeah. And, you know, the biggest thing I think for lip lift is the careful markings. I always measure and leave anywhere approximately about, it's about how much you leave behind. So around maybe 15 millimeters or so on average of remaining lips, sometimes a little bit longer, depending on age appropriate. And then, you know, full release of the soft tissue overlying that orbicularis around the mouth. And I, you really want to have it, you know, the scariest thing for people getting a lip lift is that, you know, there's going to be a, a scar right underneath their nose. So you really have to have a meticulous tension-free closure. I always throw about nine 5 monocryls deep underneath the skin. And then uh, some patients, I know our friend Ben Talley in LA does a ton of lip lift. He'll do um, his cutaneous sutures, the nylons, and take out half of them at three days, half at five. I go alternating where I'll use uh, alternating nylons that come out at five days, and then also use some fast absorbing, so those don't have to be taken out at all. And then we'll, some t we'll offer laser resurfacing, but around six to eight weeks later, which is helpful. Yeah, I mean, the incision is, uh, you know, amazingly uh, tolerated. I mean, you, you don't see the thing, you know, especially on lighter, fair skin. And uh, staying out of the nose, not going too high with your incision, it, it, it's really pretty straightforward. But I was curious uh, how you got that 
you know, how you got that out there. Probably was just, it was an easy thing to get out there. Like you said, you know, you could, you could really focus on that, market it and, um, and build, you know, build a traffic. Yeah. Landed here in town and, you know, obviously everyone's ranking pretty highly in the online searches for facelifts and nose right. jobs, but lip lift, there wasn't really any, there weren't many other practices that were aiming to do that or were even doing it. Yeah. So just naturally was one of the top results when people were looking for lip lift surgery. Yeah. You know, my, my former fellow, Sam Lamb, who, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. he, he went through a period of time where he was getting people, no, no, he's at, he was getting people to fly to Dallas for uh, keloids for their ear. And he would oh, literally wow. cut, cut them out, just cut them off. You know, he was getting, you know, getting good sized fees. And, but you know, he, he, you know, called a long tail phrase, you know, Who's searching for keloids, right? So, you know, your competition, and it's the same thing with lip lift probably early on, you had a niche, you didn't have a lot of noise. It's not like trying to, you know, pay for pay-per-click for Google. And, uh, you know, so you came up. And uh, so, you know, drilling down on a niche uh, works because you don't have a tremendous amount of competition. The average person, busy plastic surgeon is not thinking about a lip lift, right? Right. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I'm going to, you know, I, I, I want to respect your time and, but it, it, you know, uh, these things always, so I got about five or 10 more minutes. Um, what, you know, what are your plan? You know, what are your biggest challenges? Two questions. What are your biggest challenges right now in your practice? And what, what are your plans in the next, you know, five to 10 years? So realistically, you know, the, I have the biggest challenge in my practice right now is that we've grown to the point where, you know, I operate Monday through Thursday. I have four full OR days a week. I, we do, I do a couple hours of my clinic on Monday through Thursday afternoons and a few hours on Friday. And it's gone down to the point where times become a limiting factor. So I don't have the attention anymore available to be as hands-on with my staff, the office, everything around there as I was at the beginning. Fortunately, you know, I have a couple great managers that take the, that take that burden off of me that have made it easier. My goal from the beginning, and I'll tell my managers, is I want them to manage the practice and I'm available for anything. But um, you know, if they're doing their job as well as they can, then just make me the surgeon. I'm just the surgeon working in the practice and they're managing it. Um, the toughest thing right now is that, you know, we're three and a half years out. We've been fortunate to have a little bit of some steady growth over the years. And we're kind of right at that next level right now where we're in the middle of another period of growth, bringing on more staff. And I mentioned earlier in terms of for the culture, you know, we have a great workplace culture. Whenever anyone is hired on our team, they interview with myself and every single other member of the staff just to make sure that everyone's voice is heard when we're bringing on another person. And I think the biggest challenge is as we grow, just making sure that we maintain that excellent culture that brought us to where we are right now. You know, it's easy. It's human nature as we grow just to relax, to um, kind of get used to the things that brought us to where we are so making sure that we continue to do the things that we do um, and making sure that we bring on the staff to handle any sort of increased volume or size that we are and finding you know and realistically i think honestly if we just get to it the biggest challenge we have is just you know with the job market out there just finding rock star superstar team members from every single position just to join our team to maintain yeah. that we, to make sure that we can continue to do what we do. I suspect you'll be just fine just because you realize that how important it is. You know, one of our goals and what we try to do, maybe I can inspire you, which I know you're already kind of there, but you know, we want to be the employer of choice. Uh, we want people to, you know, to be a household name. Like I just want to work there. Um, because that you can only build a business as fast as you can attract, train, retain the best people. Mm -hmm. and hold them accountable in a respectful way, which is just, that's the uphill battle. That's the challenge. And every business I've ever been involved with, it's the same thing. So one last question, I'm going to let you go. Where, what do you, where do you see the future of aesthetic medicine? And you know, what do you think are the biggest opportunities for a young facial plastic surgeon? You know, the, 
the future of aesthetic medicine, I think, you know, things are continuing. I, there's always going to be limitations to non-surgical treatments, but there's always going to be demand for it. So, you know, we see every single year when you and I and our, our friends and colleagues go to our meetings, there's new non-surgical devices, the latest and greatest that are out there. You know, the effectiveness of them always can be debated, but the demand is always going to be there and it's always going to rise. So, you know, there's always going to be increased demand for non-surgical options. Fillers, Botox have been around for decades and they'll be around for forever. Um, for young surgeons, I think that the non-surgical field is always going to grow, but I really think that just for medium, long-term, short-term success, I think just focusing on what makes a young surgeon unique, their training, their specialization, and cosmetic plastic surgery is an important thing to make sure that we focus on. It's okay. I think it's completely normal and typical for any surgeon to have a supplemental portion of their practice be in non-surgical treatments. But I think it's a, it can stunt someone's long-term growth by not focusing on the, the surgical procedures that give us our our niche in that area because non-surgical is just going to continue to get larger and um, more cluttered over the next few years. Yeah, I can't I can't agree with you more. I, I mean, I see it's interesting because it, there are a lot of people that come out that don't have quote really what I would consider strong training. You had very strong training. I had very strong training. Um, it also takes a certain personality. You do have to be gutsy to push the envelope on what we do. And I do see a lot of people that come out and just settle into the non-surgical. What happens is eventually you start to lose your surgical skills, um, mm -hmm. and or or your surgical nerve. Um, you know, to maybe uh, you know, for me, six seven years ago, really you know, transitioning into a true you know extended deep plane lift uh, from a sub-smash approach, and you know, how am I going to do this? Do I think it's and then going after? So the barrier to entry to do what we do and do it well is high. Um, and so staying focused on being a good surgeon, you know, whether, whether you go and go the reconstructive route or, but, but being in an operating room and, and not just chasing the non-surgical and the devices, because I don't think long, I, I agree with you. I, 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 as you probably heard me say this, I believe 80 to 90% of purchases of non-surgical or the equipment do not make good business sense for facial plastic surgeons yet. You know, it's the, you go in the, you know, it's the allure. You go to the exhibit halls and, you know, the guy down the street's getting it. Mm -hmm. Clearly you've pro proven by staying focused. Uh, that's been very, very effective. And I hear that message over and over again. So listen, I really want to thank you, Sid, for, you know, sharing your time tonight. And this is a Friday night. So, uh, you know, I appreciate you uh, getting on the phone and sharing that with it. I mean, I know anyone who listens to this appreciates it and, I wish you the very best and, uh, you know, keep coming back to the meetings and sharing what you have with us. Hey, thanks a lot, Ed.